Hey, Typology Tribe. Yes, it's Ian Morgan Cron, once again, host of the show Typology, on which we explore the mystery of the human personality and of the human adventure. I'm on the show again today with my longtime friend, companion, producer, Anthony Skinner. Anthony, welcome to Typology. Ian, I'm so happy to be here and I'm excited for our guests. We get to delve into the Enneagram, the whole show. Dude, this is going to be, yeah. we're going to be, everyone's going to be Enneagram soaked. That's right. By the time we're done uh, with our with our show today, man, I am, I am super, super stoked for uh, our guests. And I've been reading their book and I, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, digging their point of view, so I'm looking forward to this. Bill and Christy, and is it Gautier? How do we say your last name? Gaultier. Oh, I was so close, Anthony. Gaultier. Oh, authors of the new and wonderful book, Healthy Feelings, Thriving Faith, Growing Emotionally and Spiritually Through the Enneagram. Hey, guys, welcome to the show. Uh, it's fun to be on Typology. Well, We love your show. We love oh. the Enneagram. This is awesome. We have so many friends that listen to you. So they'll be yeah. like, oh, Bill and Christy are on Typology. Awesome. <laughs> well, man, I am I am thrilled to have you and really thrilled to talk about this new book. Is that you're you're coming at the Enneagram through a very unique lens, through a, you're coming at it from a different perspective. And you know, there's a million books on the Enneagram out there. And so it's always good when you get one that's uh, coming at it you know, in a, uh, an innovative uh, and original way. So thank you for writing it. And now tell us and everybody else what makes this book so original and innovative. Well, we've been using Enneagram for a while. Uh, t 20 years ago, we discovered it and just find it so helpful for ourselves and our marriage, our family, friends. And then we started using it with our clients in therapy and in coaching and with our students. And it just felt like we hit the jackpot. Mm. I think it was so helpful mm. to me, too, personally, in terms of just revealing unconscious patterns and dysfunctions, and so helpful to me in my intimacy with Jesus as I mm. became more aware to be able to really unblock some things that were in the way there. And I've seen that be for others that mm. I've had the opportunity to lead and to coach and to offer spiritual direction for using this tool. You know, as a therapist, you, know, you guys are PhDs. I'm just a basic old MA therapist. But the thing I've learned over the years is, you know, the Enneagram for therapists can save you so much time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The 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 hours of, you know, discovery that it saves you with a client, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, Enneagram doesn't tell you everything you need to know about anybody. But boy, oh boy, it sure helps. And it helps the client on a journey of self-discovery move along so much faster. It's such a great, great tool. Now, Bill, you're an Enneagram one with a two wing. Christy, you're an Enneagram two with a one wing. All right. What is it like? What's it like for a one to be married to a two and vice versa? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that when we met early on, I was a one with a nine wing and Christy oh. was a two with a three wing. And so... Over the years, being together in our relationship, we sort of rubbed off on each other and we developed that other wing. And oftentimes that happens for people in the second half of life. They develop the second wing and now you got two wings so you can fly. So you have more options, more breadth, more depth in your personality. So it's been mostly it's been really good for us because we, we get each other. There's a lot of even though like on the Myers-Briggs, we're almost total opposites. 
But on the Enneagram, there's a lot of similarity. So we have mm. similarities in the sense that we're both altruistic. We sacrifice personally for the well-being of others. We're highly responsible. We mm-hmm. both have the weakness of tending to overgive. But we have some really significant differences, too. Bill's a gut type. So he he acts from the gut. I'm a heart type. I relate with the heart. He's really that underlying motivation of wanting to do what's right. But I want to do what gets the approval of others. And then we have the differences that he leads by principle and example. And I lead more with warmth and with encouragement. I find you really challenge my thinking and activate me to act. And I turn on your relational centers and I get you to be a little bit more warm and relational and increase your emotional intelligence. So, yeah, it's really been good. We well round each other out. So backing up just a minute. When did you discover the Enneagram? Were you married before you discovered the Enneagram? We were. It was uh, 20 years ago, uh, really before most Christians uh, knew about it, in, at least in sort of uh, popular, popular Christ- traditional Christian churches. And I had some resistance initially. I, I, as a psychologist, I thought, I don't know if this is really reputable. And I used various assessments, but... We had friends that were so into it that we uh, took a second look. And I think part of what convinced me was only in retrospect, but my initial response, because Christy was before me, and she said, you know, Bill, I think you're an Enneagram One, the perfectionist. So we were reading about it in uh, Richard Rohr's book. And uh, as I was reading about the one, I was going, well, I don't don't deal with resentment. I I don't have a root sin of anger. And I'm I'm not a perfectionist. And I don't like this test. And then I kind of heard what came out of my mouth. It was like, Oh my gosh, you know, I think this thing, maybe it's nailing me. And then over time I realized it really is nailing me. And if I would trust that there's some wisdom here from centuries back that is getting at some unconscious stuff in me, it made a deep impression on me because when I had that reaction, I was a psychologist. I'd been through a lot of therapy myself, done a lot of inner work, thought I knew myself well. But what the Enneagram was showing me is that I had this core passion of resentment that I detested about myself. I didn't like, I don't want to be the angry person. That's the one thing I don't want to be. And so it's like way down repressed and denied, but actually it's in there and it's influencing my personality so much. And so that was sort of the beginnings of the theory that we put into our book is that that core emotion for, for each type is influencing all the other emotions that are stacking on each other and hiding behind each other. So when I'm dealing with anxiety or, or shame or fear or uh, wh- whatever it might be, I need to look, okay, where's the anger in there? Because that's probably hiding. Mm. And it was really helpful for us to be married because it gave us the opportunity where he was waking up to some of this stuff. And I was like, oh, phew, I don't have to be responsible for knowing this about him and trying to walk on eggshells around it or trying to gently turn his head towards it. And I think vice versa for you as I was waking up more to my shame and I was able to see it. I was able to be more honest about it, be more vulnerable with you. It really helped our intimacy and our empathy for each other. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons yeah. I asked the question early, you know, there was when you described y'all's relationship, you were talking about all the benefits of you being a two and Bill being a one. And so I just wanted to like, obviously, what could have been a real big rub there early on, right? Now you see as something that adds to your life via the Enneagram. Yeah, right? because most of the rub. Uh, was earlier in our marriage before we learned the Enneagram. So yeah, yeah, in the early years of our marriage, we had 
significant uh, tension, conflict around patterns of enmeshment. Uh, ones and twos can both be sort of pleaser types, and uh, especially for me as a social subtype of the one. And so, yeah, we had issues to work through with, with our boundaries and individuation. And, uh, and, and we had learned by the time we, we learned the Enneagram that you need to use a tool like this for like self-awareness and personal responsibility, not like judging or fixing your partner. Yeah, it could be really misused in dangerous ways because as it reveals the root sin underneath, you can really use that as a weapon. So there's been many times I've had to stand back where I'm, I'm seeing his weaknesses and I have words and articulation for it and I need to step back and I need to empathize with him and think, what is it like to be a one who's always under the pressure of doing it better, doing it perfectly, being perfect, all these principles and ideals he can't begin to live up to. And when I do that and I put myself, like you say, Ian, I see through the lens of the one, it really helps me then to participate with God's grace and extend it to Bill instead of just be so frustrated and try to change him. Mm. That's wonderful. Now, let's just dig that down a little bit deeper. The core emotion uh, for you, uh, Christy, is shame. For you, Bill, it's anger. Uh, and obviously we don't have a five, six, seven on here. So we, we don't get a chance to talk about anxiety or, or fear, but what's it like for anger to be married to shame? Yeah. Well, if, um, anger is in a, uh, yeah, a reactive mode is, it's not a good thing. And so I think when I'm not in the healthier place, then I'm, I'm prone to repress that anger even more than normal out of concern for Christy and knowing her struggle with shame because I don't want to trigger that shame. Mm. But then if I'm not direct to be honest when I disagree or I'm frustrated, then that's not going to be good for me. And then eventually my anger would, would leak out anyway. And then from my end, I don't want to trigger his anger. So I'll repress my emotion and needs, which just increases my shame until I act out in my stress emotion of going to the eight and I get angry and then Mm. we're both angry. So knowing those dynamics has been so helpful for us. Mm. Helpful. I mean, there's some obvious reasons why, why it would be helpful, but in your words, can you even maybe even give an example or like, like, what has it helped you? I hear think of, of help I think about what is it helped you avoid or mitigate? Okay, yeah, let me give you an example. So Bill's really hard working. He's doing great work. He's up at his computer at night. He, he's trying to finish something. He's writing and he wants it to be perfect. And I've had dinner ready and I've told him it's ready and it's getting cold and I'm feeling disrespected and I'm feeling unwanted and I'm feeling offended that he hasn't come down to have dinner with me. And so the perfect storm. So instead of going to shame and swirling down to that, I'm not wanted, he doesn't care about me, his work's more important to him than me, or going to the aid in anger and getting really angry at him for the dinner's ruined, you've disrespected me, I have needs too, you know, I matter too. Instead of doing that, I can step back and I can recognize the dynamics of what's going on. He's stuck in his personality of trying to perfect what he's working on. I'm stuck in my personality of feeling unloved and feeling desperate for some affirmation, appreciation, validation. Yeah. Well, you're talking about something that we we share a lot about on here, which is 
I mean, I don't know about the word self-awareness. I mean, it's a, it's a, it is a helpful term, though. I think, you know, if you, if you don't define it very carefully, everybody's got their own idea as to what it actually means. But what I think I hear you saying is that you have an inner witness who has the capacity to stand back, observe what's happening inside and outside, and outside and how outside's affecting inside, uh, and make different choices because you understand what's happening. Most people, uh, I think you would probably agree, go through life half asleep. They are clueless about how the outside is affecting the inside, how the inside is responding to the outside. They are literally walking around in reactivity. And when you're walking around in reactivity and half asleep to the dynamics of what's, what are happening in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit, you're just a, you're just a kind of banging around and kind of making a mess of stuff, right? And uh, so I, I love that that you have modeled that for our people. And this is why I want them so badly, not only to understand their own types well, but to understand all the other types. Oh, my gosh, yeah. because, man, you, you are so advantaged in, in that regard, aren't you? Well, it really helps. And it also helps because as I am aware of Bill and his personality or my children or the person that I'm with, it informs my prayer for them. Mm -hmm. It enables me to pray with empathy for them and to participate with God's love in their life in ways I never could before understanding some of these underlying dynamics, understanding their pain. And it also helps me to understand when the dance between us gets painful. It helps me also to take responsibility for my needs and take them to Christ or an ambassador of Christ rather than expect them to always be able to be met in that relationship mm-hmm. interchange. Mm-hmm. So you guys been married how long? 37 years. Okay. So married for 37 years. And um, tell me where in your relationship right now, where's the pain point for you right now? Where's the Where's the place where you go together where it's like... This is the this is where our darkness is right now. What tell me about that? Well, the temptation for us to overextend because there's so much good that can be done and both of us can find good reasons to not have boundaries with what we're doing. And mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the pain is that's a weakness we both have. Something thankfully we've had a lot of experience, knowledge and training in, but it's still an area where we both will tend to overextend. Yeah, we're, we're running a ministry organization. So we've got uh, 20 on our operations staff. We have over 40 senior spiritual directors, and we're doing something we never imagined doing uh, as CEOs together, partnering in, in business. And uh, it's wonderful. It's an adventure. There are many things about it that are, are fulfilling, uh, but it, at times it's, it's difficult to have the boundaries and I don't think my personality is like just built for what I'm doing. I've had to like really grow and learn to be a collaborator and to delegate and to say good enough and it doesn't have to be perfect and to not apply my work ethic or capacities that everybody ought to be like that and so many things. And so I think that's where we have definitely stress and pain as our organization has grown, especially the last few years, we just keep, keep doubling. And so there's, uh, many challenges that come with that. And then the Enneagram comes into play because when we're having 
stress or disappointment or frustration. It's giving us language for what's going on. And then we can begin to put it in a different place. We can process it together. We can go to our people. We each have a spiritual director, a coach we talk to, friends we talk to. And so always getting that outside perspective into me, whether it's feedback, uh, whether it's empathy, but not trying to go go it alone. Yeah, I think too, in the Enneagram language, another pit we can fall into is we both have a line to the four. Bill, going there in stress, it's my health line, but I also can go to the lower levels of the four. And so sometimes we can match there and spin down a little bit in some of the dark emotions of self-pity, which, which we say is false empathy. It, it's not, it doesn't really do anything for us. We're better when we can listen to each other, empathize with each other, than if we just get swirling down there in some of those negative emotions. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you mentioned uh, that you're the, uh, what many people don't realize is that, yeah, you can go to your security point, like uh, uh, as a four, I, you know, when I'm doing great, I go to the high side of one, right? Now, I can just tell you, I slide down that pole so often, it's ridiculous. Uh, you can ask my wife, I, I, I have a very unhealthy one who lives in me. I slide down from the high side to the low side pretty easily where I get critical, I become judgmental, I become a little depressed about my inability to do things just the right way. Um, I get stuck. I know I'm in trouble when I get stuck on a sentence and I won't get, you know, I'm writing and I I get stuck on a sentence and I can't move on when I'm writing a first draft, you know? And it's like, the list can go on and on, right? Like uh, the voice of my inner critic activates and it can be pretty prosecutorial, pretty nasty. Uh, And so I, I definitely know about the sliding down. So listen, folks, good, good sort of uh, editorial data piece. Your security point is not something you're locked into uh, at the high side. You can actually fall down the ladder inside of your, your security point. And, uh, and of course, and your in your stress point, you can climb up the ladder. Uh, You have that opportunity as well. So thank you for raising that. Now here's an idea, and I'm sure you have already probed around in it. I sort of think that well, as you know, personality development is a highly disputed topic in psychology. How does the human personality develop, right? Uh, and there are some who would say it's uh, purely biological. There are some who would say it's purely environmental. Some would say it's a little bit of both, but, you know, and they would then disagree in what por- proportions. Anyway, I don't think anybody can answer with any certainty, but it seems to me that personality always is in response, wait, always is a strong word, is your Enneagram type, let's say, is always a response, maybe even to primary uh, trauma. What do you think of that statement? Like, Bill, do you as a one, can you look back and say that some of your improver uh, characteristics were born of some trauma that you experienced very early on. Yeah, yeah, there was stuff in my family that was very painful for me. Old, oldest child, uh, family of seven, and um, I, I was raised in a Christian family, and in so many ways I was well-loved, and the family was intact, and there were good values, and so many things to be grateful for. But um, there was a lot of stuff that was getting swept under the rug there, and there was 
conflict between my parents that I saw. I saw my dad's anger. I, I come to realize he was a counterphobic six and mm. a mom, uh, a self-preserving nine, uh, very uh, pleasing and over very sensitive and uh, that line to the anxious six. And so there was a lot of uh, stress and conflict and stuff going on that I observed that affected me. And and then I also just had the dynamic where as the we talk about the Enneagram one, we talk about the family formation for each of the Enneagram types. And for the one, it, it, uh, it's a, being a parentified child. It's so commonly ones had this extra responsibility that they take on even as a child. And so for me, that really fits. I was four years old and I was already babysitting my one-year-old sister while my mom took my dad to the train and I didn't know what to do. It wasn't that long that she was gone, but it was still an anxious sort of thing for, for a kid. And by, by the age of 12, I was like my, um, my mom's counselor when she was disappointed or frustrated with my dad, she would talk to me and I learned to be sensitive to her. And I, I learned that, okay, mom's, I didn't have language for all this stuff, but I sort of figured out intuitively, okay, mom's emotional right now. She's trashing my dad, but she actually really loves him <laughs> and she feels this way now, but it's not going to be like how she's going to feel later. Cause I'd been around the block so many times with it, but I mean, I'm 12 years old and I'm trying to, you know, as a and then into my teenagers, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And so I had a lot of repressed anger and anxiety and depressive stuff going on. Uh, and I, I mean, I could tell stories about incidents that happened that were definitely traumatic. And so even though, I mean, you look at my family, you look at the, where we lived in the home and so many things about our life, it's like, would seem like picture perfect. And there was truly a lot of good there. But then there were these, there was these stresses and even traumas definitely shaped my personality. Like, I'm going to do it better. I'm not going to get angry like that. I'm going to be more loving. I'm going to be responsible. And I'm not going to leave messes around like like my sisters and so, so many things. Hmm. How about you, Christy? What about you? Does there, can you draw a line between your two and some principal trauma in childhood? I absolutely can because I was born with the opening to my stomach closed off a disorder called pyloric stenosis, and I needed a surgery to save my life as a newborn that ended up in an abandonment for me. And so I have an, mm -hmm. an abandonment wound. It was very traumatic, and that definitely fits with my Enneagram 2 message of I am not wanted mm -hmm. and that shame. I also was the youngest child in my family, born the third child at a time. My dad was the president of U-Haul. He was flying all over the country in a little Cessna jet with the founder of U-Haul. And my mom had three little kids at home and a sick baby. And she was overwhelmed. She couldn't really be there for me. And so I had an early trauma that then led to me feeling very unseen, unwanted. There wasn't room for me to have needs in my family, I felt. And then as a highly sensitive person on top of it, my parents and my sisters are all head types on the Enneagram, and I'm the only heart type. They didn't know what to do with my emotions. And so they would tell mm. me to snap out of it. I would get punished when I expressed emotions. And so all of that just led to this turning inward of self-rejection and trying to please, trying to be a pleaser, trying to enable, trying to help out in order to get affirmation and feel wanted. Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever met a two, three, or four that doesn't have issues around abandonment. I've just never met it. I just don't yeah. think it exists. And I think you talk about creating the natural climate in which shame can arise. It's abandonment. 
right? Yeah. And uh, so I've never I've never met one where I said, Are "You seeing a therapist? Good. You working on abandonment yet?" <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's almost always there. Always, always there. Yeah. Hey, everybody! If you've been listening to Typology very long, you know that I am a huge believer in the intensive counseling programs at Restoring the Soul in Denver, Colorado. So I am super excited to tell you that now through the end of 2023, Restoring the Soul is offering special discounts to Typology listeners. Woo-hoo! So if you are at a place in your life where you are really wanting to press into those challenging personal or relational issues that keep you from the life you want to be living, listen to me. If you are in a season where personal or relational brokenness is weighing you down, now is the perfect time to contact Restoring the Soul. My longtime friend, and I'm talking 35 years, friends, Michael Cusick and his team of world-class therapists have created an intensive counseling process where you don't have to wait months or even years to find the personal or relational healing you need. Instead, you meet with them in half-day blocks over one or two weeks so you can get unstuck from the place you are to where you want to be. Now, Anthony, you have done one of these intensives with Michael Cusick and Restoring the Soul, right? Oh man, I have. I love Michael. I got to be with him for a week. For me, he is like a counselor meets spiritual director, and I would say he has razor sharp perception, and he uncovered some things for me that were life-changing. Mm, I love that. So tell people about this incredible offer. Yeah, this is great. So right now, there's a special offer for Typology listeners only. Restoring the Soul is offering $1,000 off any counseling intensive that is booked before the end of the year and $2,000 off the regular price if you book and attend a counseling intensive in 2023. No. Yes. All right, so that's $1,000 off any intensive that's booked before the end of the year mm-hmm. and 2000 if you attend one of their programs in 2023. Yes, amazing. That's a huge break. That is a huge, huge break. So listen, friends, take advantage of this amazing opportunity by contacting Restoring the Soul at www.RestoringTheSoul.com. That's www.RestoringTheSoul.com. Okay, let's talk about the book. I want to talk uh, very specifically about it. What makes it so special? Yeah, well, Healthy Feelings, Thriving Faith is putting together two uh core dimensions of life that people often separate, our emotions and our spirituality, our our feelings and our faith in God. And a lot of people have gotten the idea, whether from family or from church or uh, somewhere, that their emotions are a problem. They're they're the caboose in the back of the train. They're like a, a whining child. Uh, you know, if if I say to you, uh, "Gee, you're you're an emotional person," you're, you're probably going to feel offended or disrespected. But if I say to you, "Well, you're such an intellectual," you're you're going to you know prop up and go, "Yeah, I am." And, and you know why is that? Because feelings are just as much a gift from God as thoughts. And it really isn't true that if we just change our thoughts, it will change our life. I mean, there's some truth to that that our thoughts influence our feelings, but our feelings influence our thoughts also, and our feelings and emotions are very biological. And so, seeing emotions as a gift from God, and 
that we each have a unique emotional wiring, a unique emotional development, and, and there's a lot of distress and trauma like we're talking about that's in that. And so that has shaped our personality. So, so that's the theme we're, we're getting at in our book. And then the other thing we're doing then is we're, we're, and, and we're pointing out a number of different, I know we'll probably talk about our Enneagram and Emotions map and, and the different features in there. There's a number of different psychology uh, identifiers that we can look at with each of the types that really helps us to dig in deeper and understand ourselves. But we're, we're taking all this on a progression into knowing Jesus who knows us fully. And so to understand Jesus as the perfection of my personality, that when we look at the Gospels carefully, we can see stories and examples where Jesus has taken on what it means to be like me. And he shows me, even though he never sinned, but he was tempted in all ways to sin, and he had to grow and develop, we read in the scriptures. And so Jesus shows me with, with empathy and with grace what it's like to be me, but how to do that in a way that you, you trust God and you're loving. And so that is so powerfully inspirational for me. It just melts my heart. I love to read the sections of our book that show me Jesus in each of the types and to celebrate, okay, here is what it looks like to be increasingly redeemed, increasingly like Jesus within my personality. Wow. And one of my favorites is the empathy for each type, because we all are desperate for empathy, to be understood and to have somebody really empathize with the pain of being our type and mm -hmm. some of those temptations and being stuck in our personality when we feel entrapped by it and we can't seem to get out of it. So that's a favorite part for me, as well as the soul care practices for each type, because they're different. For each time, mm. we need different things. It's been so helpful for me to be able to wake up to that and realize that even though solitude for me as a little girl was experienced as punishment, it triggered my abandonment wound, that actually as a healthy adult now, solitude is a great soul care practice for me because it's the only way I get cut off by being over preoccupied by taking care of everybody else and tune into everybody else's emotions and be able to actually have some space to get in touch with what I feel and then some space to be able to feel and receive God's love and acceptance and presence and ministry to me. Wow, fantastic. Tell me about this, this map that we're referencing here. Yeah, so like uh, for me is an Enneagram One. So I've felt need to act to be, be perfect. I have a family formation of, like I said, uh, as a parentified child who's like over-functioning, over-responsible, a lost childhood there. I've got this root passion or dysfunction with resentment, all that repressed anger. I have a defense mechanism of reaction formation where I go to the ideals, I go to the positivity as a way of denying that resentment, that anger. Uh, and as we've illustrated, the core hurt or core emotion for my type is the anger. And then the stress emotion, like as Christy was sharing, is I become like a four. Uh, that's uh, it can be in an unhealthy place with shame, which activates my internal critic. And it's just like not a good combination for me as a perfectionist to think, well, I need to be special and unique too. <laughs> it just kind of makes what was I'm already struggling with like worse. And then I start going into spiraling down into self-pity. And uh, so then I think my favorite tool that, that we talk about in our book is the emotional alarm is, is a, a wake up tool. Uh, and so for the one, it's personal obligation. 
And the idea here is that if I can catch myself before I slide all the way down into a depressive place around repressed anger and resentment and, and shame stuff and taking the weight of the world on my shoulders, okay, there's a mess or it's not good enough, I got to fix it. If I can catch that early enough that, I, okay, I'm feeling all this obligation and, and question that that view that's just like built into me that's like, I got to fix it. I got to make it better and go, well, wait a minute. Who might help me? Or I could pray about this. Or I could talk to somebody about how I feel before I just gut act on it. So that emotional arm is, is really key. And then, you know, obviously the, the, the stress type we've been talking about in, in the core map for each of the types. So the one, my stress number is four. My, my growth number is seven. And then the, the virtue to cultivate. So it's really good to see, you know, what's the What's the Christ-likeness that is, is my type especially needs and has access to and my better self, my trusting God self? And so that's serenity. That's this, this contentment and peace. And then the key soul care practice that we've identified, and you know, all these soul care practices and spiritual disciplines are good for all of us. But in our studies, we feel like there's one that's like especially critical for your type. And so for the ones, we feel like it's abandoning outcomes to God. Because we want, we want to be perfect, we want to do it right, we want to make everything better, and we really want to control stuff. And I, I sort of discovered from my own experiences with anxiety, this went into a different book I wrote, uh, Your Best Life in Jesus, Easy Yoke, but I just discovered, you know, anxiety is a, a disease of control. I'm trying to control situations, I'm trying to control people, I'm trying to control the performance and the outcomes, and when I trust that God is sovereign, that God is God and I am not, I can surrender and submit and abandon those outcomes to God. And then finally, uh, in this Enneagram and Emotions map uh, tool, the, the last area is the positive emotion to nurture. And so we talk about for the ones, it's joy. And that's when I integrate at the seven and I find that joy. And that's one of the things that made me a huge believer in the Enneagram is when I learned the mapping tool. And so many people that sort of think they know their Enneagram type, they don't really know some of these key things in, in their Enneagram map. But I realized that when, as a speaker, for instance, when I'm like just totally in my one, I just like roll with the ideas, the principles, the teachings, which is good. I, I, that's, that's a good thing. But if I don't find the, the stories, the smiles, the relational engagement, at some point, uh, people start nodding off to sleep. Now, I won't because I got all this energy. I just keep pounding out the <laughs> principles and the teachings, and I can just keep going. And I can sort of, with that intensity, bring people along with me and energize them. But it's kind of exhausting. And I realized that when, when I learned to like find the joy and the fun, people are with me more. And, and, and obviously, I'm enjoying it more. So I had to, like, learn to smile. And so I, I used to – actually, I had somebody that worked for me years ago stand in the back of the room and hold up a smiley face. And, and, and in my notes, I would put smiley faces just to remind myself to smile. Now, you might think, like, this is a, I'm, you know, a, a speaking technique, and, and it was that. But it was really much deeper than that. I was training myself. They, look, Bill, you're not just like in this classroom trying to teach these great ideas. You are with Jesus in the kingdom of God. There is a spiritual world with resources available to you. And so smile. It's not all up to you. It's actually up to Jesus. He's in the room. He's the risen, the risen Lord. And he's talking to people. I don't have to make it happen. And so as I learned to do that, I saw that, wow, People are relating to me better. They're learning more. 
And I really, that's the Enneagram. It's my one integrating at the sub. Hmm. So now everyone's thinking this, and we got to do this super fast because otherwise we're, we're going to miss some folks uh, time-wise. But uh, what's the emotional alarm? Uh, we know for ones, it is again, what is it? It's for ones, it's this feeling of personal obligation. Okay. And for twos, what is it, Christy? People-pleasing. Okay. What is it for threes? Conditions of worth, uh, performance um, metrics, and I'm only worthwhile if I achieve. Mm -hmm. What about fours? Be careful. Yeah. Stirring up emotions. Interesting. Okay, we're going we're gonna to come back to that. Fives. Staying in your head. Okay. Sixes. Relying on safety nets. Sevens. Wandering attention. Mm. Eights. Toughening up. Right. And nines. Accommodating others. Mm, okay. Now, what's so interesting is, okay, I just want people to remind people, we're talking about emotional alarms here. These are, you know, red flags that when you see these going up the pole, it's time to tap the brakes and figure out what is going on and make yeah. some new choices about the kinds of things that you want to do to mitigate the possibility of you're going all the way down, spiraling all the way out into a place that you really don't want to go. So those are fantastic. Now I want to talk about the soul care you know, or what you call the soul care practice, if you will. And we're not going to be able to explore all of them, but Bill, what is it for ones? For the ones, it's uh, abandoning outcomes to God. Great. And twos, Christy? Solitude. Right. And threes? Emotional honesty, which is very interesting because threes are the center of the heart triad, deep yeah. feelers, but often the, the most not in touch with their own emotions. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Fours? Thankfulness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gratitude. Good. By the way, uh, Anthony, you I don't know if you do, but I have a gratitude practice every single morning in my journal. Nice. I have to nice. I have to write down a minimum of three things that I'm grateful for uh, that morning. Minimum. Well, and, I took yeah. a gratitude shower this morning, which <laughs> a gratitude shower I define is like lots of gratitudes, as many <laughs> as I can think of. Little things, nice. big things. Nice. Okay. All right. So. Fives is going, uh, what, what did we say five soul care practice was? Fives is another interesting one. Bible study, but not just Bible study. Bible study is worship. Bible study that engages the heart to worship God. Okay. What about, what about uh, sixes? For sixes, it's scripture meditation, really being able to stop that busy brain, focus down and get their calm confidence in God. Okay. And then uh, sevens. Silence. Find that quiet mind. Yeah, Generally, oh the head boy. types, of course, need that, but sevens seem especially to need that. Yeah, boy, oh boy. Eights. Spiritual friendship, because they need a safe relationship where they can actually be vulnerable. They're avoiding vulnerability. Mm. But to, to grow in gentleness, they need a safe relationship. But often they need someone to go first. So I've learned, even, even in coaching, of an eight, a lot of times I will unorthodoxly sort of go first when, it, when it's appropriate and model some vulnerability. And that gives them like some, some confidence and it, it helps them to then be vulnerable. Because okay. eights re generally respect, in my experience, eights generally respect vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here we go. What about nines? Spiritual direction. So nines are great spiritual directors. In Soul Shepherding, we have a certificate program. We train spiritual directors, and a lot of people are nines. 
but they need to receive it. See, they're so good at like listening and merging and seeing all the points of view and all that, but they, they get uh, repressed from their own needs and emotions because they're accommodating others. So they need someone who listens to them, draws them out to be their spiritual director. Right. All right. Now, fantastic. I think people are going to really enjoy hearing that for, for each of the types, those alarm bells and their soul care practices. But now I want to just, before we wrap up, I want to talk about something I think is so important. We tend to think in the Enneagram about three core emotions, right? We have anger, as I mentioned, eight, nine, one. We have shame, two, three, four. We have fear or anxiety, five, six, seven. But you talk about four. You have another one that you bring up, and I think it's so important. So let's let's hear about that. Well, that's sadness. And all types have an underlying sadness under these emotions that they're defending against. And we really talk about identifying and getting in touch with that. We call it, we call sadness good grief. That actually, if we will wake up to the pain. And we'll take Jesus's hand and enter into it and get the help of an ambassador of him in the form of a counselor, a spiritual director, a pastor, a soul friend to really give us his empathy and to meet us in that so we're not alone in and to do that grief work of working through the phases of grief. It fuels our intimacy with Jesus, fuels our emotional and spiritual growth and health. Yeah. So we're differentiating sadness from depression. We, yes. we link depression with shame as a stuck place where we're isolating and a sense of hopelessness. And then sadness is a place of movement where I have maybe hurt, unmet need, uh, might, might be trauma in there, uh, longing for God, uh, some sort of grief like Christy is saying. And so as right. I put my finger on that and get language for that, that emotion that tends to be very tender and hiding, we see that as like the royal road to healing because sadness is a short step to empathy, which then opens up God's grace to us in so many ways. Mm. I love that because I think therapeutically speaking, uh, sadness, grief, how, however we, we want to term it, is uh, at the center of so much of the work, you know? it is, And it is to own the sadness. It is to... It's to fully walk into into it with a trusted other, uh, yeah. so that it can have its way with us, and so we can release it uh, and mm-hmm. not have our lives be uh, tyrannized or governed by the sadness from the shadows in ways that we don't understand when it's uh, when it's when it's happening. Well, you know, guys, I I go. We could go on and on. I, I love the fact that we've been able to have a conversation about the enneagram from start to finish. And before we finish, let's take a moment and let me just uh, tell you this. Uh, I'm, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Now, I'm a self-preservation four, so that's a little bit different, as you guys know, than a social four. But let's just – we'll just pretend for a moment that I'm a little bit – I would say, though, interestingly, as, as a young man, I was very much more of a social type four. You know, I was – I was all over the map. But as you – let's say you're in doing the work with me. You're, we're, we're using your book. You and me, we're in therapy. You've, you've assigned it to me as an Enneagram four. Just give me an idea of like what what would you do with with me as a four? And by the way, Anthony is a four as well. So this is uh, you know us getting three free therapy from you. Where would you <laughs> yeah, take? Yeah, I love this question. Well, just the other day, I was talking with an Enneagram four in a coaching conversation, and 
you know, the Enneagram and our take on it in our book was so helpful to me. And this, this is why we wrote the book as a tool to hand to people, a tool to hand to the spiritual directors that we train. But so in helping him, I, of course, am helping him find wording for specific situations he's processing with me where he's feeling a sense of not being special. And there's this shame and helping him really see, no, that, that word fits and understanding that is self-rejection. It's how we define shame in the simplest term is that you're, there's a self-rejection going on there. And then seeing that this desire to be unique and creative, at least in part, is a defensive reaction to compensate for that shame. And so to realize that they, you don't want that to be the motivation for your creativity in the sense of trying to prove something or make something happen or eradicate what you feel, that's different than to come out of that from a place as a wounded healer that's with empathy touching into the other other people's shame. Because to get there, you have to do the grief work that we were talking about. And so then helping him to realize that he's got this interject inside of him, which is his defense mechanism of interjection. But it's like what we were talking about earlier, always feeling unwanted. So I always find it so helpful to connect the emotion with the specific example. So as people share with me specific things in their life, I connect that and I'll say, well, it sounds like you're feeling unwanted there. When we've gotten to that point is we're peeling back the layers of the onion and I can go to that level of depth and help them to see how that's where the, the melancholy self-pity swirl uh, is coming from where you can get just locked up and immobilized and seemingly unable to activate with shame it's because of that feeling of unwantedness and showing them how that that isolation now is just making it because of course the individualist we call the fours and and that isolation is not actually helping it, it, it's like you, you can't breathe now because empathy is oxygen for your soul and even though the fours are, are the like often the most into their emotions of the nine types there is that that lack of or the difficulty of reaching out within a healthy expression of their emotions for empathy. So then, you know, I'm helping him listen to his emotional alarm, teaching him how that, how it's happening. Okay, right there, that that was where you started stirring up the emotions to feel alive. You see how that was like a quicksand. You started, like you're saying, Ian, just sliding down that pole. Uh, and then to say, okay, if you can stop, catch yourself there and do something different. Could you could you go into gratitude? Could you ask for empathy? Could you, could you journal? Could you talk to your wife and say, you know, this is one of those times, honey, like we were talking about earlier that I need, I need a, a comforting touch, which it was another thing I talked with him about is the, the tool of metacommunication, communicating about the communication. And so if you can have a conversation with your wife when you're not cycling down and, and swirling in the shame, but to have a conversation with her about your personality, about your dysfunction, about your patterns, so that she sees what's happening while it's happening, and then tell her from your healthier place, tell her what you need when you're not in the healthy place, and then maybe she can become an ally there. So that's an example if I worked with him in that and using the model. I would also lead with empathy for you fours, that this difficulty of this tension between, on the one hand, wanting privacy but then wanting the appreciation of others and this desire to want to be unique and to be special, but then how that can set you up to feeling this strong pressure or feeling envious or jealous or, or inadequate when you compare yourself to others who maybe are getting attention and seem more special or more unique, just to empathize with that and also to help you to 
really see Jesus's empathy for you and the way that he, I mean, the incarnation is perfect empathy. Jesus came and suffered and experienced every negative emotion that you experience. And he experienced being abandoned and abused and judged. He experienced his specialness not being recognized. He experienced every trial that we do. And so like Hebrews 4.15 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with us but one that is able to, to help you attach to and connect and receive his, his empathy. And then I would want you to have a safe space to be able to share your emotions, be able to receive that empathy and prayer so that you can return to joy and thankfulness. Mm. Wow, you guys. Well, I think everyone is, I hope, convinced right now that they need to go out and get this new book, Healthy Feelings, Thriving Faith, Growing Emotionally and Spiritually Through the Enneagram. Bill and Christy, can you just tell people how to learn more about who you are, where you are, what you're doing. Yeah, you go to soulshepherding.org. Uh, you want to contact us, just click the contact button. That will get to us. Uh, soulshepherding.org slash Enneagram gets you to all of our Enneagram resources. In addition to the Healthy Feelings Thriving Faith book, we have another book that's self-published, Your Enneagram Map, that goes into the mapping. We have a video course on the Enneagram and Emotions. And at Soul Shepherding, you can learn more about uh, our flagship, which is our Soul Shepherding Institute retreats, five-day retreats. We're up close and personal with about 40 people, all kinds of people that want to go deeper with Jesus in emotional health and loving leadership. Uh, and if you want to just talk with a spiritual director, because we have spiritual directors on our staff, as well as training spiritual directors. And so we have them available at soulshepherding.org also. Wonderful. Well, listen, thank you so much for being on Typology. What a joy, Anthony. Yes. You know what time it is, right? That's right. It's time to go, buddy. I hate to say <laughs> it. It's time to go. Right here, you know, here in San Miguel de Allende today is the celebration of San Miguel. And so we're about to get showered all night long with fireworks and mariachi bands. And oh, I, I just got to go take a shower and get down to the, uh, down to the cathedral so I can... Uh, Go dancing. Bill and Christy, again, thank you so much. Typology Tribe, remember, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time.